Welcome to Sundial. I'm Carlos Frias. Julian Chambliss wants us to think about the future, specifically how black people are imagining it for themselves. Julian is a scholar in Afrofuturism. It's a concept rooted in science fiction where black people get to write and tell their own story of the future. But it's expanded into all parts of pop culture. Most people's first introduction into Afrofuturism was the hit Marvel movie based on the comic book, Black Panther. I now present to you, King T'Challa, the Black Panther. It's not a new concept. Afrofuturism is built on a long history of black people imagining life in the future, a better future, and what it would take to get there. This is Julian's specialty, a topic he's been incorporating into his college classes. He's an English professor at Michigan State University, where he teaches about race, pop culture, and comic books. Afrofuturism is steampunk comics like Bitter Root, populated with black characters. It's Octavia Butler's black dystopian novel, Parable of the Sower, reimagined as a graphic novel. Afrofuturism is even the late great prince singing in the 1980s about a distant 1999. Julian says it's even thinking about how artificial intelligence can help further a vision of a black future. Julian arrived this morning in South Florida from Michigan, but he's no stranger to Florida. He's a native, and he's co-curator of an exhibit at the African American Research Library and Cultural Center in Fort Lauderdale. It's called Afrofantastic. He'll be giving a talk there tonight at 6. But first, he's here to talk with us about Afrofuturism and its role in South Florida's own history. Julian, welcome to the show, man. Oh, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Any chance to play a little, a little, uh, <laughs> a little prince, right? <laughs> right, yeah. And it struck me as I was thinking about that, as we were all, my, our producers and I were thinking about that topic, uh, it kind of put us, it's putting yourself in a place, in a mode, where you almost, you, you think of a, a branch timeline, right? Right. And trying to put, trying to put black life and black success and history and everything along this timeline, right? Right, yeah. Forward and backwards, right? Right, forward and backwards. So talk to me about that a little bit. Let's let's kind of describe for you, like how you your elevator pitch, how you describe Afrofuturism to, to folks. Uh, well, you know, I, there are a lot of different definitions of Afrofuturism, but the one I typically use is that Afrofuturism is the intersection between speculation and liberation, hmm. born of people of African diasporic uh, descent, working in opposition and, and working in opposition through thought and practice against oppression, right? So, Oof, that's a lot. That's wrapped that, up a Yeah, lot that, that wraps up a lot. But it doesn't use the words technology, right? and it doesn't use the word like science fiction. And that's the, the speculative part can be lots of different things. Right, speculative. The idea of like, I think people can wrap their minds around speculative fiction in general. Right, yeah. You know, like I'm thinking of like Station Eleven, which right. is like a, a popular, uh, you know, it is futuristic. It's not necessarily technology. I mean, right, technology yeah. is Technology is a pencil too, you know what I mean? Right, yeah, exactly. About it, right? Yeah, what what technology are you using really depends on the time that you're, you're thinking about it. So, you know, one of the things I talk to students about, you know, in the 19th century, 
black voices oratory you know someone like frederick Douglass getting in front up in front of a, a group of white people and telling his life story and talking about what that means in terms of the dehumanization of black people and why liberation the end of slavery is important the technology he's using is is oratory like it is mm -hmm. making speeches out loud it's a technology we're very familiar with in the black tradition because we think about the the preacher in the church and we okay. think about like someone like martin luther king you know um i have a colleague john jennings who's a professor as well and a, a, a graphic novelist right he he's the, one of the people who adapted octavia butler's parable of the sower and he often points out like you know when you think about martin luther king you're like where's that mountaintop at like he said he's been to a mountaintop but where it's a speculative construct right and we all kind of like buy into it like oh yeah right yes that's not a place it's a it's a state of being that we've sort of like mentally and emotionally agreed to right like start stretching your thinking and your definition right right when yeah. you start stretching your definition you end up in different places right like exactly. like reimagining octavia butler's uh, right. a, a novel verse as a, as a graphic novel as, right. a, as, a, exactly. as a, an extended comic book right and you know adapting her work mm -hmm. or or thinking about the ways that a lot of genres that people are familiar with don't often engage with people of color and don't necessarily don't necessarily center the perspectives of people uh, from the Caribbean or people from Africa so when you look when you think about sword and sorcery stories as they're sort of traditionally constructed there are not people of color there they're not black people they're not brown people right well, it all depends, right? Who who has the megaphone? Right. Who's and, got the Who's on the microphone? Right. right. Yeah. Exactly. And so one of the things that really you know jarring for people in the contemporary landscape is that now you have these sort of fantasy worlds created, and there are a lot of people of color there, and there are women there, and there, and there are people who are like non-binary there, and, there, and it's not heteronormative, right? And that really kind of reflects the idea that in the future, or the future that I think a lot of like Afrofuturism or indigenous futurism or Desi futurism, the features they talk talk about are decolonialized and they're not necessarily defined by Eurocentric perception of what modernity is, right? So it, it doesn't have to flow directly from the sort of narrative of discovery and the way Europeans sort of created a, a system of exploitation, extraction that created the Western world and and instead it could be a system that's completely different and one that in fact doesn't necessarily rely on exploitation that could be cooperative that right. could be more balanced and and i think that's why something like like the movie before that the comic books but definitely the movie black panther why it resonated with people because it's it, you're not talking esoterically anymore right. like here's a visual repetition here's what we mean here's how people dress right. here's how this particular technology is made uh, here's how this this culture operates. Right. Like, yeah. for, like I think I think for me just watching it, I was like, oh, this is this is going back, and instead of having the uh, you know the 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 Tony Stark White Tower, this is the, this is the other. Right. This yeah. is the different view of that. Right. right. Yeah. And and I think for for Afrofuturism, one sort of simple way that it, it often operates is that it it, it disrupts our expectations. Mm around how systems are supposed to operate like it, it can be many different kinds of systems political systems right because because liberation and speculation are really central to the idea and it's really thinking about like let's move away from a kind of colonial system so 
one of the things that happens in Afrofuturism often is there's a, a real emphasis on moving away from patriarchy and moving away and, and sort of thinking about um, a system where like, you know, gender is thought of in a different way and and the idea of care is really important and, and sort of collectivism is really important. And and these are ideas that, that we can recover if we think about it in the history of how we've understood past societies and past practices. So one way I sometimes talk to, to students about this, if you think about land in a kind of classic Western colonial pr perspective. And ownership of. It's ownership, mm -hmm. right? But if you think about it from a more indigenous um, tribal perspective, it's stewardship. Right. You don't own the land, you're just managing it for the next generation. And then when that generation shows up, they don't own it either. They're managing it for the next generation. Your job is stewardship, so don't mess it up. Right, don't don't do anything that's gonna like mar the land because like you don't own it. It is a collective good, and you're supposed to be managing it. And this is an interesting thing when you talk about Afrofuturism. It's we're not talking about the creation of just an art. We're talk we're also talking about the imagination of a way of living. Right. Yeah. It is a a philosophy. Uh, you know, really an epistemology. Which is like a knowledge system, right? And what does that knowledge system ask? Thank you for coming in uh, with that right, right yeah, after yeah, epistemology. Right, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah, I say stuff like this to students too, and they have that blank look on their face, and I know what they're thinking. Like, what does that mean? Like, it means a system of knowledge. Uh, and, and that is a really important part because if the system of knowledge that we have, and again, my, my general analogy is a fish, because I always have to explain, because I teach a class on Afrofuturism, and it's called Afrofantastic, ironically. Uh, and I, I explained to students, hey, you know, if you're a fish, as far as you know, the fish world is this. This is the world. That this we, is the this world, is right, until you get caught. <laughs> then somebody, you know, dangles something in front of you and you bite on it, like, oh, this is a free meal. And then suddenly you're ripped from the world that you knew and you're up in this totally different place and you're like, oh my God, what's going on? I'm like, ah, uh, ah. Uh. And then luckily for you, it's a catch and release situation and you get thrown back into the water. And what you got to do, you got to go back down and talk to your other fish friends. Guys, you are not going to believe what right. just happened to me. And they're going to be like, what are you talking about? I'm like, I'm telling you, there is a totally different world out there. Are you going to tell me you were abducted by aliens at some point? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Guys. <laughs> right, right, right. And, the, and then you, you're in this situation where, like, by by the fact that you, you, you had an experience that disrupted your understanding, a whole different set of pathways are opened up and a whole different set of perspectives are opened up. And Afrofuturism often provides that same sort of experience. Like, once you understand it, it really becomes a way for you to think about, yeah, what does it mean to have a system that's more about us and less about me, more about care and less about harm, more about equity and less about extraction, right? And and, and those are really powerful ideas and that's part of the reason why the idea has so much appeal, but they're also ideas that have long and complicated links to past moments. Because people have had those same questions before. Right. And sometimes when they're having those conversations, they have a really powerful impact, right? You know, the end of slavery in the United States is about, at some level, people asking, like, you know, what does it mean to have what a comes system? Next, yeah, right? well, what does it mean to have a system that does not rely on exploitation? Like, like and can we live outside that system? And as much as 
people thought like, no, we can't possibly. There are people going, yeah, we can. And people are were thinking about this and writing about this. Like I'm just obviously like a W. E. B. Du Bois, right? Yeah, writing, he wrote he wrote a kind of a seminal seminal story, the comet. The comet, yeah, like, short if, story in 1921, right? Like what if a comet hits the earth? What if the comet hits and the I'm earth? one of the people left, and like I'm with these these white people now have to see me as as human, now. right? Yeah, they, and, and he was writing in the 1800s. Well, of, he's writing the 1920s. 1920s, okay. So, um, but he wrote that story. The comet is part of um, a collection called um, Dark Water. And but there are other stories from the 19th century. So like the, the one you probably think of is um, Martin um, Delaney, who wrote a story called Blake or Huts of America, and that's like 1859. Okay. And he's a contemporary of Frederick Douglass. Like he worked with Frederick Douglass on the North Star newspaper. But and he becomes um, historically he, he becomes the highest ranking black um, officer in the Union Army, staff officer in the Union Army during the Civil War. But he was a scientist. Um, he's really often thought of as the father of black nationalism, actually. Because uh, he actually, in the midst of, of the 1850s, led a trip to Africa and, and really started, started exploring the idea of going back to Africa. And part of the reason he wrote Blake, The Hunts of America, which is basically the story of a, of a black slave uh, who was named Blake, becomes known as Blake um, and he finds out his wife has been sold oh, sold while he was away mm. and he goes on this epic journey to re- to reunite with her where you're dissing right right yeah yeah. and as he's doing that he, he goes to all these previous locations where black people have, have rose up against slavery and so the story kind of operates as like a kind of remembrance of black resistance and it's serialized in a black newspaper called the, the Anglo-American uh, uh, and it's a serialized piece, so it wasn't collected actually until the 1970s. Our guest today is Julian Chambliss. He's a scholar and the co-curator of the Afro-Fantastic exhibit at the African-American Research Library and Cultural Center in Fort Lauderdale. He'll be giving a talk there tonight at 6. By the way, if you like the show, come see us live at the Miami Book Fair. I'll be interviewing the great Carl Hyacin on Saturday, November 18th at 1 p.m. We're going to talk about his latest book, Wrecker, and his legendary career as a Florida journalist and author. But first, we're talking Afrofuturism. And so this whole idea, we've been talking about the many layers of it, the many, not just layers, but but sides to it, right? Mm-hmm. And um, so how does that play into this exhibit that you're going to be, that you co- co-curate? Right. Well, you know, the great thing about uh, working with the African-American Library Research and Cultural Center, AALRC. Oof. Give that man, <laughs> give that man a gold star. Um, Dr. Tamika Hobbs, who's the head of the, of the center, reached out to me and wanted to do a show about Afrofuturism. And, it, you know, the center is just sort of unique because it, it has a collection that allows you to really sort of dig into both the sort of past where, you know, you think about lots of places and spaces and moments in Florida that are Afrofuturist. And and really contemporary conversations around AI and art and in particular, you know, a sort of emphasis on STEAM. So this show kind of bridges the gaps between all these different kinds of conversations with examples of like AI art, but also books and and really trying to create like a kind of context for people to understand the complexity of Afrofuturism using that sort of archival, but also sort of contemporary technological interventions that are afforded by the philosophy. You said AI and, it, and I just, you know, I got the thinking like this idea, you know, we've some of us have fooled around with sure. it already and you tell, you write into AI and you say, hey, you know, uh, Picture, give me an example. What would you type into the AI that, that would 
that would tap into this Afrofuturism? Because I'm thinking like, uh, picture America where you know uh, there was an a- Haitian style slave revolt and America, you know, like you know, like and that could cre- that could generate the the idea. So. Yeah, well, you know, I've done. I actually have my students work on AI assignments in my Afrofuturism class mm-hmm. now, and so one of the things I've had them do is sort of key around the idea of like you know what have AI sort of define an Afrofuturist aesthetic. Mm. So like what what does an Afrofuturist aesthetic look like? Or um, sort of a reimagine uh, landscapes through a kind of Afro Afrofuturist steampunk aesthetic and things like that. And those ideas are really an opportunity for because you know AI is a learning tool that's built on a kind of generative what they call a transformative model. It's it's combing the web to create like it's referencing things to create things and so part part of the the trick of ai is that the prompts that you give the more detail that you have the more you you can sort of sort of see the sort of things that you want mm-hmm. this is a way that the there are plenty of dangers associated with algorithms and the way that they learn because they they often learn on data sets that are biased right like it's where is it getting the information where that it's it building it's right, right yeah and one of the things i always ask students to do in the ai assignments that i have them do is like question the quality of the answer that you're given right because of course oh, that's we're studying mm-hmm. this stuff so it said this thing but is this what the thing it said any good right um but for a lot of people i think especially for a lot of artists and a lot of people who are designers when they're in using these tools it's it is a um, an assistant to their in sort of uh, empowering their imagination. So like, when I talk to your producer, I think there's a lot of anxiety about AI, and that anxiety is well founded. There are great books. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a you know Sophia Noble, you know Algorithm of Oppression. That's a great book if you ever want to read about the dangers of AI. Um, but at the same time, you know when you have black creators having access to these tools. What it really does is like it really helps them sort of further fulfill their imagination. So some of the art that you see in the context of the show is, you know, black AI artists making imagery, right? Wow. They, like they're 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 you know, allowing their imagination to run free. And, you know, and, and we can see the examples of that all across the web where people are using their understanding of African I- ideology or African ideas with AI tools to create visuals that are, that are really rooted in their perspective can i ask you um in the exhibit how do you make it relate to south florida like what is it um because you're you're a jacksonville guy right, right you're a florida yeah, guy yeah so talk to me about how you try to relate afrofuturism so that it speaks to an audience here right well you know we, we focus on florida figures like zorna hurston uh, obviously and an afrofuturist an afrofuturist right exactly because if you think about um her sort of engagement with uh black uh, indigenous spiritual practices like mm. voodoo, right? Like her study of what we understand to be voodoo and, and sort of thinking through that or her use of oral history, right? Like what is oral history? What is an oral tradition? Well, it's an organic information technology system, right? It's you're saying something to someone and that, that practice from a kind of African perspective is a long standing practice. Like it's not just simply what you say, but how you say it, the tone to say it, the presentation, how you say it, and the garot, right? Like the, that tradition in 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 the African perspective 
is a trained thing. Like it's not like you just simply go like I'm gonna be I'm gonna be a storyteller. No, you study with a storyteller and you learn how to tell the stories the right way. It's like learning meter and rhyme. Right, right. Like learning if meter you're and rhyme. Poetry, right. right. And so, you know, we can think about many spaces in, in Florida and South Florida, um, where we're recovering the narratives of black people and their cultural production mm-hmm. and we're thinking about the ways that black people continue to impact and project themselves into the future. And that's a really important sort of conversation to have in a place that has a long and a well-established diasporic identity where people from the Caribbean and people from Africa and people of a mixed heritage that are a product of that sort of Creole cultural landscape mm-hmm. have really made really important sort of contributions. And so the show really sort of leans very heavily on thinking about the archive as a way to sort of recover Black speculative practice. So, like Zora Neale Hurston, what are some of the other parts of the exhibit that uh, we talked about? The AI aspect. What's another part of it that you want people to really pay attention to? Well, you know, I think the the artifacts, the, the books that are going to be on display, the art, um, those are, and really the ways that I think the the actual archive itself is being sort of positioned as a as a vehicle. Oh, interesting. Okay, right, because when when I was working on the the sort of framing. Uh, information. One of the things that I ended up doing was looking at the collections list and having a conversation about like, well, you know, at some level, these things that are about the sort of black past are really a window on uh, how Afrofuturism thinks about time. Hmm. Because Afrofuturism doesn't think about time in a linear perspective. It thinks about time as a circular thing, like as a fluid thing, like the present and the past and the future are existing simultaneously. Well, we were just talking about that right before the show. Like uh, the the adaptation for Kindred, you're not right. you're not a fan of how the TV show came out, right? I'm but not that, a huge fan of the TV show. But that I, that idea that is this character, a present day character, moves through time, right. And is kind of yanked back into a time where where she exists in a in a in a time of slavery in a, in, in, right. in old right. America. But you know the 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 reason why that, that adaptation sort of fails for me and not just me. But a lot of people is that it kind of strips the, the sort of complexity of the agency that the main character has. Right. And and the reason she's slipping in time has to do with like the nature of black trauma. Right. So I don't want to spoil Kindred, but um, she's traveling time and traveling back to, to the time of slavery because one of her ancestors is in danger. Right. And so there's a way where this immediately becomes a story of like how a black person's lineage is in intertwined with trauma and how mm. even in a contemporary context, people of color are not free from the past. And that's really an interesting thing because when when we think about black people's past, we, we tend to wanna push it all to the, the past, like it all happened yesterday. Right. We don't do that with anybody else, but the reason we, you know, society likes to do that with black people because like, well, black people were traumatized and the consequences of the trauma are still present today. So why can't you get over that is really easy for white people to say, but white people never go, oh, I just want to let the past go, right? They're very proud of their past because their past is a, is a part of a positive narrative that justifies the present day and they wish to project into the future. And so like whenever you have a, a philosophy that really tries to reconcile with the past. And for black people, there is a truth and reconciliation process. Something happened in the past, I have to recognize that. I have to 
deal with the trauma that let things go that are bad, but also embrace things and move forward in a way that's healthy. And that truth and reconciliation process is something we can't get away from. Like we 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 have to do that, right? And and in doing that, one of the things that we we invariably have to do is to sort of think about what are the systems that perpetuated the bad things and what are the legacies of that system in the in the way that we see and behave and imagine, right? And still see them today. Right. right. Yeah. I you know, these are obviously topics that you you have to think about deeply for a while to let the to, to let it kind of come to the surface. And I'm curious when like when the idea of Afrofuturism came into your life. Did it come via comic books? Did it come yeah. via via reading? Like how did it It was comic books. I yeah, I studied comics uh, I write a lot about comics. I do. I do. I teach classes on comics, and um, oh, that sounds like fun. One of the yeah, I, I teach classes about comics. Superheroes. I study superheroes. Done. I mean, um, I need my three credits. <laughs> one of the characters I, I've written about a lot is Black Panther, in comics, which is often thought of as like, well, this is an Afrofuturist character, and and actually the definition of of Afrofuturism. When it was introduced, it relied very heavily on imagery related to comics to explain mm. what 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 the author was trying to say. And so my introduction to futurism is through comics, and trying to think through like, okay, well, yeah, this intersection between speculation and liberation, what does that, what does that mean, and and what is, what does it symbolize? And that really started me thinking about it in the comic form, and then then in other genre because obviously. Comics are an offshoot of like pulps and science fiction magazines, right? Like, you know, if you think about the origins of the genre. So then we start thinking about, okay, well, in, in science fiction, people always point to like Octavia Butler and Samuel Delaney and, um, all right, okay, Charles Saunders. I'm like, oh, okay. And then you just start to go, okay, but the philosophy that undergirding that, what is, where does that come from? And it, you know, I'm a historian by training. Mm-hmm. And so, a lot of times when I'm teaching our futures, I'm teaching it as like a kind of like theoretical, historical exercise, right? Let's think about the ways the definition has evolved over time. Who that, are the key figures and, you know, what do they point to to explain what our futures are made, something like that. that. That's interesting to me about the like how it's evolved over time. Right. Because I'm thinking of something like, uh, even like uh, the movies like Get Out. Right. Right. It kind of puts you in, yeah. in that place, right? Right. Yeah. Talk to me about that. Talk to me about how you've, in ways that you've seen it substantially change, like where you said, like maybe the kindred that it puts the power in the wrong place, like the right, it yeah, seems like a yeah. So one of these that's happened over time is that there's been a more sophisticated take on Afrofuturism, mm. and you have like theorists, like academics and writers, um, imagining it in different ways. And one of the things that's happened is that it's become more global, right? So when it's first sort of introduced the term it is really sort of tied to African-Americans, right? It's a cultural critic really referencing African-Americans and their relationship to science fiction and saying like, well, if they did, it would be called Afrofuturism kind of thing. Um, but then very quickly, it, it gets expanded by other theorists like people like Alondra Nelson and more contemporary writers and, and theorists like Renato Anderson. And they really talk about Afrofuturism as a, a philosophy and and knowledge system that is formulated through uh, the practice of black people in opposition to oppression and colonialism and the ideology of colonialism 
and it being Afro diaspora, like being rooted in diaspora, like the experience of black people around the world. So it's global in a way. And so it can look different in different places, but it's the same practice because it's black people imagining liberation, imagining freedom, looking for the tools to, to achieve freedom in the circumstances that they're in. So as I joke with students, if you're a kid in Chicago and you're thinking about the future and you're a kid in Lagos and you're thinking about the future, you're not thinking about the same future, but you are in fact probably still concerned with the same similar structural limitations and you know questions about equity you know trying to empower women in a particular way women of color in a particular mm -hmm. way uh and so in a way like despite the sort of individual circumstances there is a shared sense of like speculation towards liberation right like, what do we need to do to be free I, i'm i'm very curious about uh who the who the first little kid like julian is a little kid what were those moments that really started you down these roads right like thinking about these things so like you said comic books who was, right. who was the person that brought that who brought that into your life what, like what did your home look like and that oh, the comics well, went into it <laughs> my mom allowed me to buy comic books i'm an old man so when i was a kid comics were cheap not like today uh what's a comic book go for today uh, i think a, a uh a comic book today would go for as much as four bucks yeah. when i was a kid you could get them for like 75 cents Right. Yeah, and, inflation, you know, man. <laughs> like, I mean, four bucks if you're lucky. Yeah, I think there's some comic books on, on shelves now for seven ninety nine, special issues and stuff like yeah. that. Uh, so like, my mom allowed me to read comic books, and I I went to the library a lot. Were you guys big readers at home? Um, uh, yes, my mom read a lot of the Bible, <laughs> but she okay. also read a lot of uh, magazines, like um sort of like Ebony. She was a big fan of Ebony right. and Jet, especially when I so was a lot, kid. Lot, so she had like a lot of easy entry into reading like right. different yes. topics and very, yeah. was very comic book-like. And she was a big writer too. She was she oh, was really? a big, big, big letter writer. So she had like great like handwriting. Oh, you're talking about traditions, right? Right. Like you were talking yeah. earlier about like oral yeah. traditions. This yeah. letter writing she is also that. She was a letter writer, right? Even, even if she could call, she would often write, she would write me letters, right? And I'd be like, I will, you can call me but she would always write a letter. Um, so it's got it. So these co comic books start playing this role in your life. And like, did you always like you specifically going down kind of an academic path? Mm -hmm. Like, what were the, some of the things that interested you then uh, that you? Were I was not studying comics um, for sure. I was studying actually. My dissertation is about uh, urban planning in the mm -hmm. United States, actually, in the Gilded Age and and Progressive Era. But when oh, you study, that, that's interesting. So that right, got, yeah. even that gets you thinking about like, yeah, right, why are exactly. we why are well, we thinking I, about land this way? Right, and why exactly, are communities yeah. built this way? Right. Yes, that's true. That's exactly right. Like people always go like, how did you get there? But like, if you think about it, a lot of that work involves art. It involves like environmental thinking. It involves thoughts about um, social psychology. And involves questions of race. I mean, like, why do we need to, to sort of organize these spaces? Well, because we have a lot of people who are not white in these spaces, and we want to make sure they they turn out okay. It's like it's like a moral environmentalism. Uh, like play was actually a really powerful reform movement of the early twentieth century. People forget it, but organized play was a movement, and it was really predicated on the idea of like a your physical play has a direct effect on your mental state. Uh, and so, you know, things like that. And so, like, when I was um, became a professor, 
my degrees in United States history, but I, I taught at a really small large college called Rollins College. All right, sure, here in and, Florida. Yeah, mm-hmm. in Central Florida and, and Winter Park. And um, I taught all kinds of classes, but I, I was asked to teach like a sort of modern America class. I said, you can teach whatever whatever you want. You can teach however you want. And I with a colleague, I was like, ah, we're gonna use comics as primary sources. We're gonna teach it as a comic book. Comics, comics in the city was my original what, <laughs> title a, for that. A dream come true for like <laughs> for like little Julian growing up in right, Jacksonville, yeah, right? Exactly. Yes. Yes. Exactly. And um, since they had said out loud to my face, "You can do whatever you want," when I tell them I was going to do comic books, the chair couldn't say no because he because <laughs> he wanted to, but he's like. When I said anything, I did not mean. But as long as you teach the class, I don't. I don't care. Well, well <laughs> you know, I think it's always interesting to get how folks get into the topic that they spend their their careers kind of delving further and further in, into. And I'm curious, what what was that for you? Like when you, you know, you grew up as a kid who's interested in comic books. When did when did you start thinking about structures, right? Like structures around us. Like when you were in high school, what kind of things kept you thinking <laughs> down this path, or what got you to this? Well, you know, um, honestly. The, the the structure thing that first struck me was I I grew up in I grew up in Jacksonville and I grew up on the north side of Jacksonville and as um, uh, undergrad I I got I went I was in Upper Bound which people don't know is a federal program to get you to go to college it's Upper Bound's one of the, what they call the trio programs okay. Uh, I noticed this a little bit when I was when I was in high school and junior high because I got bussed to different places. But from your because of the program and you got well, I got bussed. I got bussed um, as a student because you know desegregation, right? So my junior high, I went to Jeb Stewart High School, and then high school, I went to Rebalt, which but I could walk to Rebalt, right? Uh, John Rebalt. Rebalt is a black word, black way of saying that. But um, but when I oh, that's funny. You guys, you had a different, <laughs> you had a whole different. Well, I, I I studied French, and so I know like my name. I know how to say it, but I, no black person says John Rebalt. They say Rebalt, right? And well, I'm like, like in Atlanta, they call it Ponce de Leon. <laughs> right, they call right, the street yeah. Ponce de Leon. I right, well, at least nobody in high school could be that way. But 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 one of the things that that got me thinking about structure is I used to ride a bus. Yeah, because I was a poor kid. And um, and that's hours <laughs> out of your day. And when I when I when when got into college, I actually went to the same college I had done the upper bound stuff at, which was Jacksonville University. And I, so I would have to get up at like five o'clock in the morning, and hop on the bus because I wasn't living on campus initially. I was trying to save money, and I would ride to campus to get to my first class, early class, and. That experience of riding the bus my entire life growing up made me think like, why is the system like this? Why, why do I have to like spend so long to get to a place versus other people? And like, you know, and why is it that way in the South versus the North and things like that? And so when I first started my study as undergrad, I was studying um, housing development and transportation. So, so like my honors right thesis, yeah, yeah, my honors thesis was about like housing patterns in Jacksonville when I was an undergrad, and then as I when I started writing my dissertation, I really wanted to write a dissertation about why Southern cities were different, and and sort of talk about race and space and power and things like that. 
And um, my advisor, because I had like, well, there's a different kind of city in this other city, and I was really following a very particular kind of thing. And eventually that became like a dissertation about planning and the philosophy behind it at, at, at a crucial moment in the late 19th century, the Gilded Age. And then that just really made me very sensitive to like the ways that structures create outcomes. Were there moments during that that really I, I call them like throw things across the room moments, like like where it, re- it all hits you and you're like, I can't believe things are this way, and and, uh, oh, and it's sure. kind of led to these. Yeah, I mean, um, why why don't we have a better match rent system in the South? Well, because of the car, but also because of people's making decision. It's cheaper and easier to sort of orient towards towards the car, and southern cities um, developed rapidly after the Civil War, but that development actually intersects with the emergence of the automobile, and so instead of a walking a series of walking cities that you know slowly get overlaid with like the infrastructure associated with urbanization. It's a tr- basically concentric circles. You get like a kind of port city or or hub city, you know, railroad hub, port hub, and then immediately the the ability to go way out and and have land and all this other stuff. And but it's decisions, right? It's planning is not. People think planning is. Um, well, you know, it's it's out of control, but it's decisions, right? Like people make decisions when it comes to the built environment, right? They decide where the train is going to yeah, go. Yeah, they, they Where's decide. the monorail going right. to go? And, Where's and, it going to stop? Once, right. once the pattern kind of is established, there's a logic where, like, well, we can't change it, but you can, right? But you don't want to because you'd have to make this tremendous argument about changing it. You'd have to like get right aways to create a more coherent system that allow for train you'd have to you know you'd have to interfere you know air quotes air quotes air quotes in the market to make things more equitable and you don't want to do that because as a elected official people would be angry with me and while there might be mass benefits to all people if you had a more efficient transportation system what it would cost you in the short term as an individual as a policymaker, as a politician, is so high you don't want to do it. And this is where, like, an idea like the abstract, the, the underneath, the idea underlying Afrofuturism. If right. you apply it to something like, how do we make transit better right, in right. Miami? Like, for and, God's sake. Yeah, and you're, you're, and then that that would be immediately a question like, well, what would make people safer? <laughs> what would make their life better? Right? And it would be like a totally different set of questions. You'd be like, well. People aren't safe with the way that we have it now. Like we have some of the worst intersections in the country in Florida. We probably need to do something to get more people out of cars and closer either on foot or through some sort of bike or mass transit to the places they need to go and so on and so forth. And like it would mean a real intervention in the thoughts and logics around how you plan roads and construction and housing and all manner of things. Like it would, it, people would, people would lose their minds. Actually, they would be super upset because they'd be like, "No, you can't do that," because that's bad for this, that, and the other. And sorry, I, I love how the discussion of Afrofuturism has brought us to <laughs> urban planning, and and I guess it's it kind of leads to to my next thought about like 
how does Afrofuturism affect where we're going next? Like, how, where, where is Afrofuturism going and where is it taking us? You know, that that is a really big question and, and there's no simple answer. I think one of the things about Afrofuturism is that it is a movement that exists both in the academy and outside the academy. And what as a result, well, what I mean by that is like, you know, you have people like me who are, you know, basically talking heads talk about Afrofuturism, but you also have people who understand it, who are not academics, who are trying to make it work in the real world. Mm. Like there are people around the country and around the world who just understand the principles of Afrofuturism, who've, who've studied like texts like Octavia Butler's Power Parable of the Sower, or they study sort of philosophies of some of the academics like me and go like, well, these are everyday things that I can do Right. I, I want to have a more resilient um, food ecosystem that I'm a part of. So I'm going to grow food on my on my on my property in the city or in this empty lot. And we're going to claim these empty lots and grow food and give it to the community. Or we're going to create like um, independent, resilient solar microgrids to make sure that people have power. Or we're going to create independent, resilient Wi-Fi grids that allow for people to get online because that's a human right and they're doing stuff that is fundamentally like right outside the door of a person going this is an important liberatory tool using technology that's interesting to me that that you kind of um that you're working with different spheres it's not right. or just uh writing or creating a piece of art and kind of are yeah. imagining but yeah. but turning that into something more tactile right? yeah and you know there are people who, who call themselves Afrofuturists that are advocates for blockchain. There are people who call them Afrofuturists or advocates for urban gardening. There are people, Afrofuturists, who are advocating for like um, renewable energy, but at a microgrid, mm. like small wind turbines, small uh, solar panels on your balcony, right? Like, what does it mean to, to use technology to make your everyday life better? Right. And less dependent people, too. Yeah, yeah, it's right. a life, I hear independence in a lot independent, of Independent, right? So like you're no longer at the mercy of like an invisible exploitive system. Instead, you've created a resilient system that, that helps the people on the ground. But there are also people who are, are, are advocating for like, hey, let's have a different political philosophy and approach to thinking about the future, right? There, you know, the future industry foresight you know, which is the study of the future. That's what they call it. They call mm. it foresight. Mm. Uh, and you can study foresight. <laughs> People forget that, but you can get degrees in foresight. And and also, like, you can you can be open to studying black history, which, right, our, which yeah. our state has been <laughs> right. recalcitrant to do. Like, that's, like that's another Careful, way of Careful, there's doing... an angry mom heading down the road. There's always right? an angry mom somewhere. <laughs> but, like, that's an interesting... Uh, right, yes, Like, yeah. I think of that, um, when I think of Actual Preacher, I just hit me, like, I'm thinking of, like, Percival Everett. He just wrote The Trees. Oh, yeah. Which is, like, another idea of, like... Uh, like the, the time slipping again, right. like, time uh, slip, yeah. you yeah. know, this idea. So, so talk to me about that. You know, this idea of, of turning this idea of like independence and thinking about the structure, right? Um, talk to me about how that, maybe that, how that relates to South Florida. Like what are some things that we should be paying attention to? I mean, in, in South Florida, that lens? Um, there's always this question of what does it mean to have a more equitable set of policies and practice that are going to help the most vulnerable, hmm. 
and in a place where environmental changes are an everyday right occurrence yeah, climate change you're feeling it every right. time it rains yeah, yeah. You, you feel it every time you, you feel it when it's hot you feel it when it's supposedly cold right it's hotter than it's supposed to be it's wetter than it's supposed to be and it's and 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 you're you're dealing with the sea coming for you in a way that you probably didn't imagine even 10 years ago. Right. Um, and those are real questions about how do you put resources to work? Like, who are you going to protect? Because if you just let the market protect, right? Like, you know, um, the sort of displacement that is created by environmental transformation. Right, climate gentrification is yeah. a real thing. People, yeah, it's people, a real thing. People like, who happen to live in high, high higher places and which were poor places before, poor places. Mm -hmm. right? Like you know, didn't live on a shore, but now you live on a shore. It's like, oh, I can't live here anymore. I'm going to move inland, and that inland is basically displacing poor blacker, browner people. Like that is that is climate justice. That is. So the policies and practices around reclamation, the policies and practices around um, trying to address the climate, the climate crisis, or or the climate change. You know, we don't have to call it global warming. The climate is changing. Ask any insurance company, and insurance companies know. <laughs> like they don't even have to like they don't even debate with you. They just go, the climate has changed. You're gonna pay this, right? And walk away. They're right? embracing climate change. Yeah, right. <laughs> Like this is how much money you're gonna have to pay us to be right there, right? And you can go talk to whoever you want to, but we're done with this, right? And so everybody in Florida has had this conversation, either directly or indirectly. So you're already dealing with like the consequences of a changed potential future, right? So folks who who um, in the, in our last minute or so, folks who are who go to see you tonight, six o'clock. Um, to talk about Afrofuturism, what are some of the things that you hope that they take away? What are some of the things that you want to to bring to people's fear? Uh, well, I'm gonna hopefully give them a, a clear sense of the definition and its evolution. I'm gonna talk about the Florida uh, connection and sort of talk about some of these same things I've talked about today and the ways that um, kind of Florida spaces sort of fit within that mm -hmm. that idea, and and really talk about what happens in the visual sphere when Afrofuturism is on display. Like, wh what does it mean to have Afrofuturist art in particular, uh, really sort of keying on some of the art that's in the exhibition? So hopefully it'll be interesting. I'm sure that it will be. Julian, thank you so much for spending the hour with us. Uh, no, I really appreciate the time. Our guest today was Julian Chambliss. He's a scholar and the co-curator of the Afro-Fantastic exhibit at the African-American Research Library and Cultural Center in Fort Lauderdale. He'll be giving a talk there tonight at 6 p.m. And that's Sundown for Thursday, November 9th. Leslie Obay Atkinson is our lead producer. Elisa Baena is our producer. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's VP of News. Katie Munoz is our director of live programming. Peter J. Mertz is WLRN's VP of Radio, and our engineer is Richard Ives. Our theme music is by the Miami Afro-Cuban funk band Palo at GoPalo.com. You can download a podcast of this program. Just search for WLRN Sundial on your podcast app. And if you like our show, come see us live at the Miami Book Fair. I'll be interviewing the great Carl Hyacin on Saturday, November 18th at 1 p.m. We'll be talking about his latest book, Wrecker. Coming up next week on the program, we have a lineup of amazing authors all week leading up to the book fair. First, we're speaking with Edwidge Danticat. I'm Carlos Frias. Good vibes only.
WLRN Public Media.